Christmas is important not just because it's the moment when Jesus came to earth and also as a holiday that we celebrate together. Christmas is important because of where it leads. Jesus comes not just to be born in a manger. He comes to be born in a manger so that eventually he would die. The story of Christmas has a number of references to this reality in it, that he was born, he became a human, but we can't stop there. For instance, when the angel comes to Joseph and Joseph is inclined to divorce Mary, put her away quietly because of the pregnancy, an angel comes and tells him that what's conceived in her womb is of the Holy Spirit and that he would need to name this child Jesus, and then the angel says this, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with this. He says, you'll name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So he comes in order to do something else. Same thing with the shepherds. The angels appear on that mountainside as the shepherds are taking care of their flocks, and the angels tell them that a baby has been born, and they say, that you will find this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, and they tell them that this Savior who is born is Christ the Lord, that this baby is going to be a Savior who is the Christ. So the, the birth of the child doesn't terminate just with the manger scene, that Jesus' birth has far more sweeping implications. Even Herod understood this, although he didn't completely understand all of the implications. Herod thought that the birth of this Christ child, this king of the Jews, would be a potential threat to his throne. And so when he heard that this child was born, he enacted a genocide in the region around Bethlehem, likely killing hundreds of children just out of his paranoia that someone would be a competitor to his throne. So the birth of Jesus is far more important than just the child in a manger. The birth of Jesus sets in motion the coming redemption. The birth of Jesus sets in motion the possibility of ultimate forgiveness. The birth of Jesus sets in motion the reconciliation of God and mankind. And so when we come to this holiday celebration, when we come to this Christmas season, we need to realize that while Jesus is born and while that's important, his birth not only leads to his humanity, his humanity then also leads to his death. And over the last couple weeks, we've been trying to dial into each of those aspects. Two weeks ago, we talked about the significance of what it meant that Jesus was born of a woman and born under the law. Last week, we talked about Jesus' humanity and how he was tempted like as we are, and I hope that because of our work last week in Hebrews chapter four, that you pray differently this last week. Did you, did you ask Jesus to help you? Did you find yourself more inclined to cry out for his grace? Did you, did you come to him with a sense of boldness? That, that was the point of Hebrews chapter four and last week. What we're trying to do is to answer this particular question. Why does the incarnation matter? What's the purpose of the incarnation? Why did Jesus come? Today we're gonna to unpack this third implication of Jesus's incarnation, namely his death. That Jesus was born to die, that he came into the world in order to offer his life as the means by which people like you and me could be saved from our sins. And so therefore this 
Christmas season should be celebrated not just because of the birth of Jesus, but because it is a season that marks the purpose for which Jesus came, that there's a connection between Christmas and the cross. And today what I wanna do is try and connect his birth with his death. So look at Hebrews chapter nine, and particularly verse 15. Here's the summary of what this entire text is about, that Jesus came essentially to die, and his death's purpose was in order to save me. Look at verse 15. We're gonna start at the end, and then we're gonna make our way back. The text says, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So there are some important words there. Jesus dies to save me, and what that text says, that there was this death that happened, this death occurred, this death that occurred redeems them, this death that occurred redeems them from transgressions, these transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. So these are the words that explain the essence of why Jesus came and why the incarnation matters. It's what the angel said to Joseph, that he'll save his people from their sins. Jesus redeems us from our transgressions. Or to make it very personal for you and for me, we could say it like this. Jesus saved me from my sins. Now the word transgressions here is a word that indicates the breaking or the violating of God's law. You could think of it in a very summary way as the the violation of God's Ten Commandments at some level. It means that every single one of us has in some way transgressed the Ten Commandments. We've, We've not done what we should have done, or we've done what we know that we should not have done. So essentially, because we have God who is holy and creator, the violation of these, any of these Ten Commandments is a serious charge. I've put it in my own language this way, God is holy, I'm not, and that's a problem. So in order to understand the beauty and the significance of the birth of Jesus, we have to begin by understanding the enormous problem of our rebellion and the way in which our transgressions was in effect our attempt to be able to run our own lives. And if you don't understand sin and rebellion, then you'll never understand the beauty of the cross. So you have to start here. You know, one of the things that we teach our children in our Next Generations ministry, and one of the things that you ought to be grateful for if your children are in the Next Generations ministry, is we teach our children that they're sinners. Little, little sidebar, that's why as a parent, I don't know why you wouldn't have your children involved in Next Generation Ministries. And for that matter, I don't know why you wouldn't have them involved in Next Generation Ministries and then also worship together as a family. And here's my reason for that. In the first place, to be able to push into their hearts important truths that will help them hold on to their faith longer in the future. And secondly, so that they understand the beauty of what it means to be in a body of believers, not just in their own particular age, in their own particular grade. I think that the problem of children leaving the faith when they get out of the home is in large part because they've not had a full picture of what the church is in terms of its corporate gathering 
gathering or a pushing of the Bible into the soul of the heart and lives of our children. So some of you, here's the challenge. Perhaps in 2017, you need to maybe think about what it means to find a way to get your children into an environment where they can hear more of God's word and then find what does it mean to worship together um, as, a, as a family. It's not a biblical mandate, but what I am suggesting to you is I think that is a helpful way to be able to embed the heart and life of the gospel into the lives of our children. I'll give you an example. This last week we were um, talking as a staff as to what thrills our hearts in the ministry and our children's ministry director, Kristen Gilbert, was commenting on how important the kindergarten year is in terms of helping children understand that they're sinners. And um, she was telling us the difference between the number of kids who know they're sinners at the end of the semester versus the kids who think they're sinners at the beginning of the semester. And I know this very practically because my wife is the teacher of the Sunday school class. And, and, and when she begins to teach the lesson on Ten Commandments, every year it's, it's somewhat funny and somewhat isn't how she comes home and says, yeah, well, we gave the lesson today, and I asked the question to all the kids in the class today, how many of you are sinners? And it's remarkable how invariably few of them raise their hands. But in the same moment we'll say, I- I'm not, but my brother is, right? <laughs> And so, very, very early, we have effectively raised hypocrites, right? It's just the way that we are. And I'm telling you, one of the most helpful things in the world to a child is the difference between the number of kids who raise their hand at the beginning of the year when you ask the question, how many of you are sinners, and how many raise their hand at the end of the year who know definitively, definitively that indeed they are sinners. Friends, that's a very important thing to get in the hearts and minds of every child, and for that matter, every person who walks on the face of the earth. Because the reality is, if you don't know that you're a sinner, then you don't understand why Jesus died. Jesus died to save me. Now listen, over the next couple days, many of you are going to have opportunities to be able to engage with family members who you're going to celebrate Christmas, but they don't don't really know what Christmas means. I mean, they know intellectually what it means, but they don't know it at a heart level. And so one of the things I want to do today is I want to try and integrate Hebrews 9 with a little bit of explanation of how you might be able to share the gospel with people over the next couple weeks. So inside your bulletin is this tract. And uh, if you didn't get one when you came in, there's plenty on your way out. And I'm going to walk you through both this tract and Hebrews 9. As we do this, this may be something you just put inside your Bible and you can use as a good outline of how, how do you share your faith. Well, here's a way to be able to do it. You could study this, read this, and for that matter, if it was appropriate, you, you might even give it to somebody. But can we just have this rule? We're not going to put these in the back of a urinal at a restroom. Okay, we're not going to do that. I've seen those. Please don't do that. And and you're not going to put them inside the bill at a restaurant if you're a stingy tipper, okay? So we're not going to do that either, right? We're not going to do track bombs with people, right? Just got to throw them at them. Here, read this. Hope you get saved, right? So don't do that. Instead, what I'm suggesting is you hold on to this as a way to think about how you would share the gospel. Maybe you give it to someone at some point, but what I want you to think about this morning is what does it mean for us to pray this kind of prayer? We've prayed this before. Lord, open a door open my mouth, and open their heart. And I'm praying that over this Christmas season that there'll be lots of opportunities for doors to open where you could bridge the coming of Jesus and the death of Jesus. Pray that God would somehow allow you to be able to share your own story. One of the greatest lead-ins to sharing the gospel is not by telling people from the get-go that they're sinners, but you tell them that you're a sinner. 
You start with you and that you have transgressed and you have been saved. And so if you only have 10 seconds to share the gospel, if you only have one little thing that you can say, say this, I'm a terrible sinner with a really bad heart, but Jesus saved me from myself. That's, I mean, in 10 seconds, that's the essence of the gospel message. It's not complete, but it's better than saying nothing. Now, everything else in this text is to make this point that Jesus saved us more evident, more clear, more beautiful, and frankly, a little bit even more emotional. And so I'm aiming today, I'm aiming for your affections. I'm not aiming for your brain. I'm aiming for your heart. So let me just show you four ways that the sacrifice of Jesus is amazing. Number one, we find the text tells us that the sacrifice of Jesus was a better way. Look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Stop right there. When I say better, a better way, I don't mean like better like A-rated versus B-rated. I mean the difference between one didn't work and one did work. And the point of this text is that what happened in the Old Testament was pointing towards something that was more effective. Once again, this text uses the concept of the high priest in order to describe the role that Jesus played in redemption. Now, we talked about that extensively last week, so I'm not going to unpack all of that again. The point simply is that Jesus entered into the holy of holies in the same way that the Old Testament high priest entered into the holy of holies once a year in order to provide atonement, and Jesus appears on the scene. He doesn't come through the Levitical priesthood. Instead, Jesus now becomes this one who's greater than any priest because he's both prophet, priest, and king. And in this prophet, priest, and king role, he makes a sacrifice. And he doesn't just make a sacrifice by virtue of an animal. Rather, he makes a sacrifice, that namely being himself. He is the sacrifice. And so the essence of the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus, as our prophet, priest, and king, makes a better way for atonement to happen. And when the text says that the good things that have come, that's what it's referring to, that the, the beauty of the gospel has now come online, that Jesus enters in, or ushers in, rather, the good news. So when it says that he did so through a greater and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation, it's referring to the fact that Jesus' presence even now is at the right hand of the throne of God. That the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament was merely a picture of the reality of Jesus being in God's presence as our ever-living sacrifice. He stands there as our atonement. So John picks up this kind of language in Revelation chapter five. Here's what he says. Between the throne and the four living creatures, among the elders, I saw a lamb, notice this, standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll, which is God's redemptive plan, from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, and the golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, why? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. So the idea is that Jesus provides a better way. 
He's a better priest. He offers a better sacrifice. He, he brings in the better news, that of the gospel. As we'll see in a moment, everything about the Old Testament pointed toward this better way. The, the sacrificial system was not sufficient And it wasn't sufficient on purpose. It was designed to create a longing, a longing for something more. And what you need to know is that every other system beyond the gospel always creates this longing for more. Every other system, every other works-based system always has built within it enormous insufficiencies. I mean, after all, how many good things do you have to do in order to weigh out how many bad things you've done? How many prayers do you have to pray? How much money do you have to give? What are all the things, and you, when you're talking to people who do not believe the gospel, you're talking to people who in effect think that some way, somehow, I gotta make this right. I gotta be able to balance these scales, and one of the ways they try is by comparing themselves to other people, saying, well, at least I'm not that bad, or I'm like that person, but they know somewhere inside their heart they've done things that are wrong. So the question is, what do you do about them? And this would be a great question to ask somebody who you know who doesn't believe the gospel yet and ask them, so what do you think you need to do in order to make right what you've done wrong? And you'll be surprised at how many people say, yeah, I don't know, that's a problem. And underneath that, we'll talk about more of this in a minute, underneath that is the problem of a guilty conscience. And so what the Bible offers is a better way. Secondly, We see that the Bible offers, through Christ, a permanent sacrifice. Look at verse 12. He entered, notice these next words, once for all. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, and we'll leave it hanging there, What's he he talking about? He's talking about the fact that Jesus offers a once-for-all sacrifice. Now, for us who are on this side of the cross, it's hard for us to consider and feel the significance of what that means. What you need to know is that the Old Testament system was a bloody system. The sacrificial system was filled with blood. Every morning and every evening, a lamb was sacrificed. And then on the Sabbath day, that sacrifice was doubled And then, in addition to the sacrifices that happened every single day, there were annual festivals that involved sacrifices. There's the seven days of Passover, the eight days of the Feast of Tabernacle, the the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the the Day of Atonement, the the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Tabernacles, the, uh, I already mentioned, the Feast of Weeks, excuse me, the the, the Feast of the New Moons. And those are just the, the official sacrifices. Individuals would have to bring sacrifices like Peace offerings and thank offerings, or offerings connected to vows. There were sacrifices after giving birth, sacrifices for the purification of lepers. There were sacrifices for intentional sins. There were sacrifices for unintentional sins. Can you, can you imagine with all those sacrifices, the kind of environment that the temple must have looked like, let alone what it smelled like? I mean, has anybody else walked by the butcher section in the rest, in the, in the, um, restaurant in the uh well if you're in southeast asia that's the case but if you're in indiana you walk by the the butcher in the grocery store and there's just this kind of smell can you imagine what the temple must have looked like or smelled like this summer at the 
Indiana Fair, I walked by a display area, a corral area that had a number of bulls in them. I mean, really big bulls. And I stopped there and I said to my wife, can you imagine sacrificing something like this? Can you imagine the amount of blood? It's like a huge animal. R. Kent Hughes in his commentary on Hebrews suggests that over the thousand plus years of the sacrificial system, there must have been more than a million animals sacrificed. Just think of all the blood. In fact, he suggests that in the Passover festival, a trough was constructed from the temple to the Kidron Valley just to deal with all of the blood. So the temple must have been a a gruesome sight. And friends, it was designed to be that way. So then we hear this phrase, once for all, and it has a new level of significance. You see, the sacrificial system and the temple was designed to show people the holiness of God and their sinfulness. It was designed to show them the gap between God's righteous demands and their ability. Now, let's go back to the track. So in the track, it starts with creation. The place that you need to start, if you can, in sharing the gospel is the fact that God is creator. The reason that's important, because if God is the creator, then he can set the rules. If you encounter somebody who doesn't believe that God's the creator, then just ask them this question. Well, who in the world told you that it's wrong to lie? Where did that come from? Or steal? Like, someone somewhere had that idea, and that is from our creator. Because if God is creator, then he's the one who not only creates a good world, but he's also the one who's able to establish the morality of the world, which then enters in that all human beings have rebelled against God because every single one of us have sinned. Now listen, if I've engaged people in conversation about this, here's how I simply present it. Look, I'm a sinner. I've done things that are wrong. And I'm sure that you'd agree with me that you've done things wrong too, haven't you? I, haven't, I don't know that I've encountered anybody, maybe a four-year-old, I haven't encountered anybody who says, oh no, I've never done anything wrong. Most people know that they've done wrong stuff. The difference is they don't think they've done as much wrong stuff as other people. Or they try to balance out their wrong stuff by doing good things. So the idea is that in sharing the gospel, we begin with God is creator, he is holy. The problem is our own sinfulness, that namely that we are not. And therefore, any violation of God's rule, any violation of God's law becomes rebellion against him. Now back to Hebrews 9. That's why this phrase, once for all, is so significant. The previous sacrifices could never fully address the issue of sins. They could never get to the level not only dealing with the external, but also dealing with the internal. Therefore, there was sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, year after year, festival after festival. And the temple and the tabernacle were places of worship, but they involved blood and death because God wanted to remind his people continually that God is holy, sin is serious. Which is what every funeral is designed to communicate. That human beings are not ultimate. That there's an end point. There's something that we can't conquer in our lives, no matter how much we work out, no matter how advanced technology and medicine becomes. Eventually, unless Jesus returns, we are all going to die. There is a foe that is greater than our own humanity, and that reality in our world is meant to send us a message, namely that there's a God in heaven, and we have violated his righteous demands. And yet the hope offered in Jesus is there's a sacrifice once for all. Now, verse 14 gives us our third point, and that is that the beauty of Jesus means that there is the offering of total cleansing. Look at verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The point of this is simply that there is a different level of cleansing that is offered. A cleansing that comes because of who Jesus is. Back to the track. So we've gone creation, curse, now we talk about Christ. Christ comes to us in sinful flesh. The reason why Jesus comes, this is again where you can make the bridge for this time of year and identify that Jesus comes as a baby, not just to come as a baby, but so that he could come and be God in the flesh. That Christ comes into the world to take upon himself our sin. That God is creator, there's a curse that comes, and that Christ through the cross, the next panel, offers us atonement by virtue of his death. And so as you talk about the gospel, to connect it to creation, connect it to curse, connect it to Christ, then connect it to the cross, now we're making our way through what it means for somebody to understand the gospel. Look now back at Hebrews chapter nine. It says that he offered himself without blemish. It means that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice because there was no sin in him. It means that Jesus takes the wrath of God on himself that was deservingly applied to people who had rebelled against him. So when we share the gospel, we have to be sure that the death of Jesus is communicated as that which provides the kind of atonement and forgiveness that's not found anywhere else. Because what this text goes on to say is that former system was able to sanctify for the purification of the flesh in verse 13, but it was never able to purify our conscience from dead works. Do you know what that means? It means that the former sacrifices, they may have created a temporary cleansing, they may have created a purification, but it never lasted. In the same way that when someone does something good for somebody else when they don't deserve it, it may make them feel better for a few moments, or maybe a few days, but when they do something wrong again, they gotta go back and do something good again to, to sort of offset it. And the result is, all they're doing is trading bad work for good work, bad work for good work, bad work for good work, or in the Old Testament, impurity for purity, impurity for purity, and that never gets to the issue of a guilty conscience. What do you do, not just about what you do, but what do you do about why you do it? What do you do about the heart? What do you do about the conscience that can never fully be dealt with? And so that former system could never get to the root of the problem. Listen, part of the tragedy of people in your world who've never received Christ is not just that they do wrong things. It's not just that they sin. It's that they go to bed night after night after night after night and they go to bed with a guilty conscience. Night after night, they wonder about if they've done enough. They wonder if they've said the right things, if they haven't done all the things they shouldn't, that they've stayed away from the things that they're not supposed to do, and they live with this perpetual, nagging, guilty conscience. And right in your Bible and right in your heart is the very offering that they could be cleansed, not only of their sins, but their conscience could be wiped clean and could have a new relationship with Jesus. So I want you to see that when you're sharing the gospel with someone, you're not just pointing them as to how they can have eternal life, you're helping them know what it means to have a conscience that's actually finally dealt with. Only the death of Jesus is able to fully cleanse us of our sins. It's only Jesus that can take care of the guilt and our conscience problem. This is what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. 
Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, notice this, in full assurance of faith, here it is, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our, heart, and our bodies washed with pure water. So what Jesus does is he offers to us a cleansing that is offered no other place. It is only through Jesus that sinful people can actually have a clean conscience. Think what it means for your brother or your sister or your mom or your dad or your cousin to know that truth and the difference that it would make in their life. Finally, a new relationship. All of this leads us to the final point in verse 15 where he says, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So the Bible offers then a new kind of relationship, a new relationship that we can have with our creator. The aim of the gospel is to free us from guilt, free us from condemnation, so that we can truly serve the living God. Next panel on the track is recreation. So we've come from creation, curse, Christ, cross, and now we come to recreation, that God is making a new people and a new place. That's why Jesus described it with Nicodemus as being born again. The idea is that God's not only preparing a place for them in the future, but that he is even now preparing for them and giving them a new heart. He's, he's making them his people. Just think of the family members in your world who so desperately need a new heart. They don't just need to change their behavior. Like something so foundational needs to change in terms of who they are. And the longer and the older they get, the more it's evident how much their heart is off. And think what it would be like if someone in your family or someone in your sphere of influence could actually understand what it means that, that God makes us, as this track says, he makes us new creations in Christ so that we die to our sinful ways and can learn to love God and our neighbor. Just imagine what it would be like for that to happen in the hearts or life of someone who's near you. Hebrews 9, 20 or 15 talks about Jesus being this, this mediator of a new covenant. This new covenant means that now human beings, when they turn from their sins, when they, when they put their trust in Jesus, that they no longer trust in themselves and instead they're, they're fully trusting in Christ for their forgiveness. And as a result, they're different. So if you want to find a great way to make an entrance into the gospel, just tell someone near you how the gospel has changed you. You can just say something like this. You know, I, I was a terrible sinner. Look, we grew up together. You know that. Let me tell you what's going on in my life right now. Like, I'm learning things about how to parent. I'm learning things about myself. And Jesus is helping me to change. And I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm telling you, man, something's different on the inside. Why not tell them that? If you found, if you found gas for a buck 15 around the corner, you tell your family about it because you're so excited, buck 15, you come in and tell, hey, you guys get gas. But the reality is something so much wonderful has happened inside of our hearts that we become, unfortunately, so familiar with it that it tends to lose its awe. How is your joy different because of a relationship with Jesus? So the Bible then promises that those who put their trust in Christ that the atonement of Christ has then been applied to our account. Our sins are paid. God's wrath is removed. We're saved and made new. And that's what the final panel is about, which is commitment. The, the invitation that, look, for those who trust in Christ, they will be forgiven and made new. And 
That's what happened if you received Christ. You, you put your trust in him and you were forgiven. God cleansed you, took all your sins, past, present, and future. He cleansed your conscience. He put forgiven over your heart. He made you new. He gave you desires that would have never come from you. And he did all of that. And so the offering here is to this person who you're talking with, look, why, why not trust Christ? Why not put your trust and your hope in him? And you know, it may be that you're here today and you just, this cold Sunday, you just came to church and, or maybe you've been coming here for a while. And, and my question for you, if you've not made the decision to trust Christ, is perhaps the day that God's inviting you to do so? Do you feel drawn today to believe what I'm talking about? Do you know do you know at this very moment right now that God can save you? Do you believe Jesus died for your sins? And do you know that there's nothing you can do in order to save yourself? Then why not even right now in this moment say, I believe I'm going to trust in Christ. Why not cross the line and say, I believe in you. I need to receive you. I want to invite you today. I want to invite you to put your trust in Christ this very day. For those of you who are already followers of Jesus, my aim is, is to try and reawaken some love and affection and passion for the gospel in your life. Because if we're honest, something can happen over time that somehow the beauty of what Christ has done for us can fade. And yet once for all, permanently, completely, irrevocably, Jesus provided a way for you to be forgiven, not just of the things that you've done, but he's provided a way for you to be forgiven of the person you are. He changes you from the inside out, and now, out of the overflow of that joy, calls you to share that news with others. And friends, it is unbelievable news. The problem is, as we become so familiar with it, it begins to lose its beauty. Several years ago, I was struck by a video that I watched. I've never forgotten it. I'm going to show you a cutting of it in a moment. Some of you have seen what I'm about to show you, but it's worth seeing again. It's the footage of a tribe in Papua New Guinea and their response to the gospel after hearing the story of the Bible for months in a chronological way from a group of missionaries from new tribes. They began with creation. They made their way all the way through a chronological approach to the Bible. They went slowly to be sure that people really understood who God is and what their need was. And then they recorded the moment when these people heard the gospel and when they believed. And I want you to remember what it was like the first time that you knew that all your sins were forgiven and see what these people did and their response when they understood that truth. There was a sense of tremendous relief the Mok are generally a restrained people, but as the gospel sunk in and new believers sensed the liberation from sin, spontaneous rejoicing broke out. Watch what happened. <laughs> Village believers stating that he too believes that Christ has paid for his sins. Itao, which means it's true or it's good, it's very true. Village grammar rejoicing that he believes, so does she. 
Different ones giving testimony as to their belief in Christ as their sin bearer. Mark saying that if they really are believing, then God's word says that their sin is forgiven. Itau, it's good, it's true. Spontaneous rejoicing breaks out. This went on for two and a half hours. Friends, I want you to be that guy. I want you to understand the beauty of the message that we offer to people, and I want you to be the guy or that woman who opens your mouth because God's opened a door and see if he will open their heart because we have the most glorious news ever known to sinful mankind that Jesus, once and for all, paid the atonement of our sins so that our conscience can be clean. He was born, he was tempted, he died. May God help us to love that truth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please create within us a love for this gospel that we know and yet can become so familiar with that we lose the passion to be able to share it. Give us, I pray, um, a burned-in memory of these people in Papua New Guinea so overjoyed with the reality of what it means that their sins have been forgiven. And make us a people ready to share. So open doors and give us boldness. Give us wisdom to know what to say and how to say it. Make us a people ready to bear witness of the greatest news ever known to sinful mankind. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.